Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining me. And we're recording over here in the United States. I'm Shane Claiborne. I'll be the host. And I'm so glad you could join me because today is going to be a really special conversation. I, uh, I, I am convinced that a lot of us who are Christians use our faith just uh, to escape this world, to promise people that there's life after death. And we're not always as good at talking about life before death and how our faith should impact the world that we're living in right now. And honestly, having this show is also a really great opportunity for me to connect with people that I've really wanted to talk to and that I admire. And one of those is our guest today, Reality Winner. Uh, I'm sure many of you will know her name. Uh, we, we connected, um, I guess it's been a couple of years ago, Reality. And so I've, I've been really excited to have a conversation like this. I hope this is the first of many. Um, but thanks for taking the space to be with us, Reality. Thank you so much for having me. This is long overdue. <laughs> I, so uh, I've got like a little piece of art here. I feel like I've kept everything that you've sent me. You know, uh, uh, you you have been on this wild uh, ride for the last few years. And for folks that are not, you know, that, that don't know the backstory here, um, I don't want to just remember you for going to jail for what you did, but I want, you know, you're bigger than that. You've got a whole background of experiences leading up to that. So I thought I'd let you introduce yourself just a little bit and tell us um, who you are before we talk about um, what the last couple of years has held for you. Right. So I'm just a normal person, a little girl from South Texas. <laughs> Um, raised in uh, post 9-11 America. So my father was, um, he studied theology and psychology. So of course, 9-11 was kind of like, I always call it his Da Vinci code. And he was very adult with us and speaking about it. Um, so that shaped my career aspirations. And I joined the United States Air Force. I became a linguist in Farsi, Dari and Pashto. So Iran and Afghan languages. And my goal in life was to understand inside and outside um, what brings people to commit acts of terrorism to prevent mm. the next 9-11. Um, after my six years in the Air Force to get closer to uh, the career field that I really wanted to get into, the linguistics aspect, I started taking on government contracts. And um, in 2017, I was in Augusta, Georgia, working um, on a government contract as a linguist. That's about as far as I can tell you. Everything yeah. else is classified and I'm bound by the, you know, for the rest of my life. I can't really say anything more beyond that. Um, and in 2017, I got into a bit of trouble, as some people may or may not know, and wound up doing four and a half years in federal prison. Yeah, so, and that was the that was uh, 
the longest sentence I believe ever for someone uh, charged with unauthorized release of government information to the media, basically whistleblowing, to, uh, you know, trying to make sure that other people knew what you had seen because it was so urgent um, that you, you um, it's, it's like, Mar you know, I think reality, Martin Luther King, you said, um, traffic laws and red lights are good things, but when a fire is blazing, uh, the emergency vehicles have to go through the red lights. And you, you kind of saw this fire blazing and we can't just go on with business as usual. Um, but that, that act of courage and of uh, sharing that information had consequences. So uh, I don't know what you're able to say. I know some things you can say, some things you can't, but if you want to tell us more about um, why, uh, why you, you, uh, made sure that we know these, these, uh, this information that you saw. Right. So again, we're just always going to have to talk around the who, what, where, when, and why for forever. I think other people, my attorney could probably come on here and say everything as long as it's not for me. However, what I can say is I did what I did. I knew that I broke the law. I did not realize I would be prosecuted um, so heavily. Um, however, you know, I came clean to the FBI, um, and I pled guilty and I accepted the prison sentence. Um, so I'll never say that I didn't do what I did, or I didn't break the law and I don't accept responsibility. Um, but at the time when I did commit the act, I did so thinking that any sane person would see what I did and say, she honestly thought she was acting in good faith. Yeah. And that it would be not, it wouldn't be seen as something so insidious or threatening to the United States government. And that I did never, I never meant any harm. Yeah. And instead I had a federal prosecutor basically saying that I myself was a terrorist. Yeah. Um, oh, and you know, when you're the one wearing orange, when you're the one literally in chains, and someone is saying that and they're in a suit and the judge is listening to them, it becomes a fact. Yeah. I learned in the worst way possible what makes something a fact and what makes truth, truth. Mm -hmm. um, so for the next four and a half years being locked up, it was like every morning I had to wake up and remind myself what my truth is yeah. and that I am not a criminal. I broke the law, but I am not a criminal, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it's been this really wild journey ever since I was convicted under the Espionage Act. Yeah. And you now, so four and a half years, now you're out, you're still dealing with all the, the um, uh, bureaucracies of probation and, and um, uh, you know, being tested and all these things that, that uh, too many people have to, to think about. And many of us were, you know, we're doing everything we knew to do to try to advocate for you. And, you know, we're, we're writing letters from time to time. I'm in touch with your mom from time to time. She's actually been on the show too, you know? And so I, I think, but it was, on the one hand, it was a terrible experience, inexcusable what our government did to you, um, and yet I, I'm convinced that God kind of works through the cracks of everything. And so there's things that shaped you that I'm sure you would never want to relive and other things that you're walking away with. So 
I just wonder if you want to share a couple of the things that, you know, four and a half years of being incarcerated, um, uh, how that's formed you or allowed you to see things you didn't see before. Right. So it's not the true definition of irony. I think it's more coincidence that not three weeks before I myself was arrested, I had watched the Netflix documentary 13th. So it actually talks about the 13th Amendment and how mass incarceration is the American replacement for slavery. Mm -hmm. And that's what the prison industrial complex stands for, making profit off of ownership of human bodies. Um, And just learning that there are two systems of justice in this country. And then all of a sudden I'm caught up in it, regardless of skin color, collateral damage, and that it truly does. It does not matter what you have been charged with. Once you are in the position of defendant, it is in the hands of the prosecutor. And yeah. it is, and I always say it, the most powerful person in the United States is the person who holds the gavel, the judge, because judges do not upturn each other's sentences. They do not, there's no system of checks and balances, even though you can appeal. There are way too many people waiting for parole boards who have done their time. And that there is this system that nobody wants to come out and say, These bodies are owned by the state simply for profit, and we bolster it through morality. Mm. And that so the system of criminal justice does not stand for justice anymore, and it doesn't stand for public safety. And so before I was caught up in the system, you know, I had about three weeks of obsessing about it before I found myself in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've only spent the last four and a half years from the inside trying to figure out, like, just how true it is and how do we change it? And it's, it's been so difficult because in federal prison for women, you are with the white collar, the minimum, all the way up to people who cut their husband's head off with an ax. I mean, everybody is in the same unit. It is mixed. And so you are seeing how incarceration is used against every single type of defendant, no matter what they've done. And I can tell you in almost every single case, it still isn't making society better. It is not making society safer and it's not preventing crimes from happening in the future. Hmm. Mass incarceration in the United States in the last 200 years or 20 years, sorry, 20 years has gone up 700%. The crime rate should have gone down 700% and it has not. We have the highest incarceration per capita in the entire world, and yet we are not the safest country in the world. That means yeah. incarceration is not the answer to crime. Yeah. Um, and insanity yeah. is doing the same thing over and over again. That's right. Without result. Um, yeah. And for folks, you know, listening internationally, I think it's so important. By the way, that that 13th film, if you haven't seen it, uh, uh, it, it's an incredible film. There's other, you know, really great books, Michelle Alexander's New Jim Crow, you know, Slavery by Another Name. There's some great books that are out there on this. Um, but we we have about 5% of the global population in the U.S. and we have 25% of the prison population. So one in four prisoner incarcerated people is here in the U.S., um, and there's also the race side of this, right? That that there are more um, 
African Americans incarcerated today than there were enslaved in the 1800s. And so right now, one in every three African American boys, one in three can expect to go to jail unless we rethink things. And we, we literally, like you said so well, reality, like slavery didn't change, it just evolved. And, um, and, we, and it's a new force of labor. Exactly. You know, we had, we, had a, we had a business expo that came to Philadelphia and they named uh, the prison uh, population as one of the biggest workforces in America. And folks, you know, outside the U.S. may not know, but the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery, uh, that, that's how we kind of think of it. It didn't actually fully abolish slavery. It said slavery is illegal unless the person is convicted of a crime. And so now someone that's incarcerated actually doesn't have the same rights. They don't uh, have to be paid a minimum wage. And um, there, you know, I have friends that are incarcerated now that are making a dollar or two a day for the work that they do. Um, outsourcing prison labor has become a massive industry. I mean, Eddie Bauer, there was a Victoria's Secret where folks, you know, locked up or making lingerie. There's AT&T has used operators that are you know, all kinds of stuff. Right. So um, this is a huge justice issue. And you you saw it from the inside. So I wonder if um, you can share a little bit of a vision of not just what's wrong, but also what would a more restorative justice system look like? Uh, you know, cause there are folks that are eminently dangerous, but you know, I think it's over half the folks that are incarcerated uh, are it's related to drug offenses, not violent crimes. And so differentiating between, you know, folks that are eminently dangerous and folks that just, uh, you know, maybe their primary motive was economic. And if we had some better social infrastructures, they wouldn't be locked up. Right. So for me, the first thing is to is to address the humanity behind it. We do psychologically have a thirst for vengeance that comes from hundreds of thousands of years of tribal society. It comes from people do experience a dopamine hit when they perceive somebody getting their just rewards. Okay, you see somebody cut in line and then denied service. You're like, yeah, he got it. You know what I mean? He got what he deserved. That's a dopamine hit. The same way when you watch a true crime documentary and somebody does something heinous. And at the end of the show, you see them with their double life sentence. That's a dopamine hit. And addressing that, just understanding that that's not the solution. That my sense of perceived justice is not a societal solution that we can um, implement in mass. And mm -hmm. so for me, my favorite quote actually came, um, it comes from Gregory David Roberts from Shantaram. And it's basically justice is not done until everyone is satisfied, mm -hmm. even the offenders. And he goes on to say, justice is not the only way we punish those who do wrong. It's also the way we try to save them. Yeah. So, I have been locked up with people who are incredibly disruptive or have done something really wrong. Um, there's a young woman, her name's Yvette Davila, and she killed two people and she's serving life. I can't say that the time in prison has done any good for her. She's gone through incredible hardship, but I also can't say that being removed from the conditions which brought her to the act haven't said about the conditions to which she will never kill another human being again. Yeah. So I think the way we break the cycle of violence is to break the conditions 
that paved the way for individuals to commit violence. Yeah. And, you know, when I think of uh, uh, the scripture too, the, 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 the words for justice and righteousness are kind of bound up together. And, and uh, um, some of my scholarly friends uh, that actually finished seminary, I, I'm on a leave of absence reality. I dropped out of seminary, but anyway, those are my credentials. Um, but my friends that, you know, they said the best translation for that phrase of justice essentially is restorative justice. Um, and we're kind of, conditioned to think of criminal justice in terms of what did they do wrong and what punishment do they deserve for what they did. But restorative justice is asking different questions. It's asking what wounds were inflicted and how do we heal those wounds? And it leaves room for the person that may have even been a perpetrator of violence to uh, be a part of restoring those wounds. Uh, And I, I think particularly in your case, reality, you can sort of go like, okay, she did four and a half years in jail for like what wounds were inflicted, right? (laughs) This is crazy, right? But that's the case for a lot of folks, right? Is that we're not asking questions about what's going to right the wrongs. That's what righteousness is about or what's going to heal the wounds. But we're asking like, how do we punish this person for the law that they broke, regardless of whether that law makes any sense or not, right? Right. And ultimately the goal should be that whatever offensive act somebody is perceived to have committed how do we position this person to where they don't need to commit it again whether it's an economic or caused by mental illness or addiction which is you know a health condition or um you know the the trauma normal people just don't walk out and commit violence yeah you know there's an erosion of empathy going on in their mind that triggers that how do we get them in a place to where they're not going to commit violence again? Because if you put most human beings in a normal situation and you remove so many of the societal pressures and the economic stressors, they're not going to commit violence. Yeah. And if we can provide that to everybody equally, we're going to see less violence in our society instead of locking them up and then releasing them with no support and with twice as many rules as an average citizen. Yeah. You know, I got in trouble last Thursday morning because my urine was too light. And I've been waiting to get called back in to redo that drug test, which is a hundred miles round trip. I mean, and I have to take off work for it, not get paid and then pay extra in gas money because my urine was too light. I can't control that. Yeah. You know, nothing that's before we even talk about if there were illegal substances in my urine. Right. That's even before I even break a rule, you know, and then we want to talk about why I'm being tested for drugs when I didn't commit a drug offense. Right. Right. You know, and I don't have a documented history of substance abuse. Right. So, you know, like we can keep it. But the only thing is, is now I'm living on pins and needles waiting to get called back in and praying my urine is the color they want it to be. Why? Like, how does that make me a better person? Does that make me less likely to violate section 9793E of the Espionage Act? (laughs) Because the only result of my sentencing should be that I am no longer in a position to recommit that offense. Yeah. And that's what restorative justice is. That's right. People. That's it. And let me just uh, say for folks that are just tuning in that uh, this is Shane Claiborne and I'm talking with reality winner. Uh, It's safe to say that I don't think many of us in our country would even know about 
Russian interference in the election or be concerned about uh, the what we now know to be true uh, with election results if it weren't for the courage of reality winner. And um, I want to talk about something else a little bit, though, before we run out of time, reality, which is um, uh, I know it's very personal, but about your 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 faith and you know we started writing a little bit and i know that you've been sort of on this spiritual journey but did you grow up with any particular religious faith or when did that sort of surface for you um i think i grew up normal in some ways but also incredibly unique in other ways so my father wanted my sister and i raised episcopalian or catholic light and so we went to a private Episcopalian school till about, I went till third grade. My sister went till fifth grade, but he would always tell us why, what we were doing was wrong. So he would always be like, oh, well, Christmas was technically in March. And, you know, this is why uh, they were breaking bread before Easter. Like he would give us like the Jewish roots of everything and the yeah. historical truths of everything. Um, so when I moved out at 18 to go live on my own and be in the military, I did more research on everything that he had been, you know, teaching us about our faith. And so I actually started living more as a Messianic Jew. So I still today, I keep kosher. I keep a kosher home. Um, and I do follow that picture of the, the, uh, the, the, the tents, the feast of tents, right. And uh, yeah, I do support in the fall and I, we just finished Passover last weekend, you know, and I observe all of these. Um, but I never forget the fact that I was raised Christian and I always, you know, of course you brother brought me a little bit closer to, you know, Jesus of Nazareth. And, um, I think the world would be an amazing place if everybody lived like Jesus, you know, and I say that as somebody who's practicing as a Jew, you know, just because simple, just love your neighbor. And that was the one rule. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I just, I've, I straddle both worlds. Yeah. And so is there, is, I love it. I'm so glad that you shared that. And I mean, we're all walking through this, this journey together. I like that scripture. It says, you know, we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And, uh, as you're working out that, um, is there any scripture that you kind of hold to that has gotten you through everything you've made it through or they, or even that you think is sort of a prophetic word for us today? Um, for me, and I, it's, I don't even remember, you know, um, book or verse. I just know that, you know, God reminds us that once upon a time we were all the strangers. And so that is the way to treat others. Yeah. Yeah, I I, um, I often think of that. Um, you know, we Matthew twenty five when Jesus is Jesus's final account of the judgment is uh, not just a doctrinal test, but it's it's you know we're going to be asked when I was hungry did you feed me when I was incarcerated did you visit me right when I was uh, um, mm-hmm. in need of health care did you take care of me and um, and. I have to say, I, I think you've committed your life to a lot of those same things that, you know, we're all trying to aspire after as, as followers of Jesus and red letter Christians. And um, OK, so I want to ask you one more thing before we run out of time. we got two minutes reality. Uh, uh, so, you know, OK, so my friend, you know, Brian Stevenson, who founded the Equal Justice Initiative, incredible brother, uh, he, he, he says that our system sometimes treats you better if you are rich and guilty. Than if you're poor and innocent. <laughs> yeah. 
And uh, I mean, I, I think it's so true, you know, um, but, you know, in your case, we've got a lot of folks that we know broke the law um, mm-hmm. in the Trump administration, connected to the Trump administration. Um, and some of them were even charged and convicted and given a presidential pardon. I mean, all that, you know, I think of Maria Butina, I think it was a Russian spy who ended up spending like less time in jail than you did. So um, without being vengeful, what does it really look like? I mean, what does justice look like to some of these, the rich and guilty folks that we know have been um, doing, you know, not only breaking the law, but just really undermining democracy and human rights and things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You got any thoughts on what justice looks like for them? I think justice for everyone is just the prevention of such acts um, and the cessation of such undermining of our democracy. But justice for them should be mercy, respect, and compassion the same way it should be for every human being. So not that I want them incarcerated. I want more people freed. I didn't want Maria Bettina to spend more time in prison. I want every person convicted of any sort of misconduct to have her dignity and respect within the system that she was given. Mm. I want everybody treated right as opposed to more people incarcerated. I'm a prison abolitionist, so I can't be wanting everybody else locked up while I'm trying to abolish the mass incarceration industry. Come on, y'all. I, I, I think we could keep talking for hours, but we're hours. out of time here. <laughs> we'll do it again soon. Uh, that was a good word to end on, though, and it sounds a lot like Jesus when he says, I've come to set the oppressed free and break every chain. Come on. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.